Hi, I'm Ray Simmons. Welcome to the Confessionalist Podcast. Here's where we talk not just about solutions to problems, but how to proactively advance and build local Christendom. I appreciate you giving me some of your time today. The podcast is growing. I I hope you'll get yourself a copy of my new book, my first book, uh, The Confessional County on Amazon. That will uh, lay out this doctrine in hopefully an understandable and practical way. And if you like the book, uh, post something about it, post it everywhere so we can revive the practice of social confessionalism uh, that we had in the early days of the Reformation. Well, we're on episode 11, and today I want to talk about how to defeat Gnosticism. How to defeat Gnosticism, to kill it. That seems like a strange topic, but it's relevant today. I realized just how relevant it was during the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference last month. Uh, That was the Politics of Sex conference, and its purpose was to uh, show the causes of our sexual depravity today and to present some biblical solutions, and I I think they did an outstanding job at doing that. There was a particular talk that made the whole conference worthwhile for me. It was a a live onstage podcast titled The Theology Pugcast, hosted by C.R. Wiley, uh, Glenn Sunshine, and Thomas Price. In this episode, they also added a fourth guy, George Grant, and the the men uh, showed the link the philosophical and worldview link between Gnosticism and the sexual depravity we have today. So I highly recommend you find the talk if you can. Uh, It's not on the normal uh, theology podcast. Uh, You have to be a member of the FLF network and, and get it on their website or app by going to the Politics of Sex uh, recorded sessions. Well, today is part one of a series called How Confessionalism Beats Gnosticism. I'm not sure if we're going to have two or three episodes, but I think it's going to be worthwhile and uh, very helpful. First, a quick review of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a philosophy that predates Christianity, but was finding its stride about the same time as the early church was forming. Gnosticism says that Spiritual existence is more real, more pure, more important than physical existence or or matter. Matter is not important and is inherently evil. Things down here in the material world are dirty, uh, but the spiritual world up there is sparkly clean. And who wants to live in a dirty, inferior material world? So if you're a Gnostic, your goal is to advance beyond, to ascend above the physical. This caused a lot of problems as the church was forming, problems regarding the dual nature of Christ uh, specifically, uh, his manhood and his godhood, for example. If Jesus is pure and spiritual, he cannot have a real body like us, says the Gnostic. Of course, this is heresy, and it took uh, some significant church councils to undo this wrong thinking. So what does this have to do with today? Why deliberately bring up an ancient heresy at a conference on sex and politics? Why even have a conference on sex and politics? Shouldn't we be focused on the problem before us, uh, COVID and the tyranny and the economic destruction that comes with it? 
Well, first of all, we have to realize that COVID is not a problem with a direct solution. The solution is not ultimately medical or procedural or even jurisdictional, although there are some significant policy problems, big ones. There's you know, no doubt about that. We all know it. Uh, but that's not the underlying uh, fuel in this fire. The, the problem is covenantal in nature. COVID is a pestilence. And it's difficult to remember that because there's no national discussion about it. We're bombarded with information and opinions on COVID, but seldom, if ever, is it discussed as a punishment. Or if it is discussed, it's sort of in passing in a a general sort of way. Yet we have specific biblical evidence that it is a punishment, a result of sin. Deuteronomy lays out the curse for sinning, transgressing the law of God, and breaking a covenant. And the specific curse there is a pestilence, which is basically a a plague. Remember that 2020 and the seven to eight years leading up to it uh, was the celebration, not just of sexual immorality, but of sexual perversion. Now, back to this talk on Gnosticism. Glenn Sunshine laid out some interesting points. The term sexual revolution did not originate in the 1960s. It originated with a German in the 1930s named Wilhelm Reich. Reich was a member of the Frankfurt School. Now, the Frankfurt School was a school basically that said, how do we capture the culture? How how do we bring in ideas like Marxism? Now, there was a man who led the Frankfurt School named Antonio Gramsci, and he realized that in order for Marxism to be accepted, it had to be accepted as a good solution culturally. And uh, so they came up with a number of things, and one of them was the sexual revolution that basically wanted to get the family out of the way, uh, normal marriage out of the way, and sexual norms uh, put aside. Reich, uh, according to Glenn Sunshine, was a blend of Freud and Marx. Remember with Freud, uh, he says that we have unmet sexual desires and we uh, get those off of our chest by building civilization. And yet Marx thinks that uh, civilization is inherently evil. So I won't go through all of it, but essentially the Gnostic teaching underlies this philosophy. And one, one key point in their view is that matter, and therefore our lives here on earth, are not redeemable. Now what you have when you have Gnosticism is two ditches, and neither one of them is good. In one ditch you have asceticism asceticism. And that's seeking to separate from the material world and sort of pull back. Uh, That's one ditch. The other ditch is libertinism. And that's allowing the physical to just go ahead and be dirty, to be immoral, because, hey, that's what it is anyway. A libertine is a person who's devoid of moral principles and just sort of throws off all sexual uh, restraints. Now, as C.R. Wiley pointed out, Gnosticism is not something that has gone away. It's alive and kicking in our circles today, even in conservative uh, Bible-believing churches. Wiley said that it is the most widely accepted and practiced uh, heresy today. And I infer that what he's talking about is a Gnosticism that keeps heaven's ethics up there and keeps the Old Testament in the past. And you and I have seen this in some some churches that would be good otherwise. Uh, now, these churches 
who are thinking in a Gnostic way probably don't realize it, and so we need the Word and the Spirit to help us in correction and training in righteousness. So our sexual debauchery today, sodomy and gender confusion for children, and all of the other deplorable things are things that used to be deplorable anyway to our our culture but are no more. Well, Gnosticism had a play in how we got there because of the libertinism it produced in the culture. Uh, you know, whether there's no concern about biblical law or uh, morality, and also the asceticism it produced within the church. The church pulls back to uh, its uh, internal piety and has nothing to offer the culture. So Gnosticism, well, it's not good no matter the flavor. Here's where I'm going with all this. The comment that made the whole conference worthwhile for me was when someone asked this question of the podcast panel. Quote, What do we do to prevent our children from embracing Gnosticism and the transgenderism and the gender neutralism that flows from it? C.R. Wiley's answer was this. Teach your children to work with their hands. Teach them to work with their hands. That was interesting and unexpected to me. Now, Wiley comes at this from a personal experience. He's been a house builder and a college professor. He's made a practice not only of working with his hands and with his mind, but he seems to be combining his theology and his practice. And I think that's why you see him at these conferences that are more action-oriented. I strongly agree with Wiley on this point. There's something about being grounded, and I use that word intentionally, grounded, that uh, um, makes you realize a couple of things. First of all, matter really exists. You can't deny it, you know, if you're if you're working with it. And secondly, uh, you can make beautiful and useful things. I think working with your hands is one of the primary reasons why agricultural and rural areas are slightly less bad than urban areas. Out here, you're either working with your hands or you're going to go without in many ways. Of course, you don't have to live in the country and you don't have to be a carpenter to work with your hands. The overall point, I think, is to connect with the material, to use your uh, knowledge in a tangible way. Well, I'm going to add something to Wiley's work with your hands, and it's this. Confess with your mouth. In God's providence, the period of Gnostic influence left the church with a great resource in the creeds and confessions. It was the false doctrines that led us to, uh, as Christians, corporately confess such things as God is the creator and upholder of all things. Uh, He is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that Jesus is the Son of God with a real body and not some in-between amorphous state. Uh, There was a real virgin birth, real miracles, real death, and a real resurrection. So the creeds and confessions of the church, Apostles' Creed, uh, Nicene Creed, Belgic Confession, Westminster or London Baptist Confession, these have been helpful. Now, these are doctrinal confessions. I believe the same concept continues to a different type of confession, social confessions. The practice of social confessionalism where a society binds itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. To see how social confessionalism beats Gnosticism, let's think of not 
having an all-of-society covenant with God. Let's say you and me, we, we believe the Bible's ethical scope is all-encompassing, all nations, all persons, all institutions uh, for all time. Okay, uh, so far so good. But then let's say we think and feel that practically, really, the only connection, the only binding ethic from heaven is going to be within our own circles, within our families and our churches. The civil magistrate, and especially all of society, well, that's a bridge too far, at least for today. Sure, we'll proclaim God's ethics broadly, but the really the only connections that we expect are within our churches and our families. Well, what we have just done is made a nice and comfortable place for the Gnostic neighbor to come and sit on our couch, metaphorically speaking. We're, we're helping sustain this heresy. What we have now is at least partial Gnosticism. I would call it uh, societal Gnosticism, where the ethics revealed in the Bible are separated from the actual laws of the land. Sure, we pray the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven, but we're content to leave uh, some of that as conceptual, as spiritual for now, uh, because it's just a a, a bridge too far. Um, So if we think about this another way, If you can only practice your knowledge, uh, your gnosis, to use the Greek term, in a limited way, what do you have? At best, you will have a biblical subculture and a broader culture of social Gnosticism. Heaven is seen in broadly spiritual terms, but doesn't come down into the real world and the culture around us. Yet, social confessionalism, if practiced, will not allow this. See, with that, with social confessionalism, you can't have some segments of a society under God and others not. Therefore, it gives no quarter to a culture of uh, Gnostic dualism. So putting this together, the person of Jesus Christ, properly understood, directly opposes Gnosticism. As the Chalcedonian formula says, and that comes out of the Council of Chalcedon in uh, A.D. 451, Uh, it puts it this way, Jesus is one person in two complete natures without confusion, division, mixture, or separation. He's one person in two complete natures without confusion, division, mixture, or separation. He's fully God and fully man. He's distinct, but he's not separated. So, Jesus Christ is really the ultimate answer to Gnosticism. Now, if Christ, if this Jesus is king of all the nations today, and remember that all things are upheld in Christ, in him all things consist, that's Colossians 1.18, and if he mediates or executes his kingdom through institutional heads, uh, persons, families, uh, churches, civil magistrate, he does so by way of covenant. Therefore, Confessing Jesus as a society forms a covenantal connection that repairs the continental drift uh, between the material and the spiritual, between application and knowledge. We are connected to Christ and his ethics, and there's a connection with us now in in the physical world, and there's no room for partitioning out exceptions. Now, this is the case that we see for individuals and, and, and churches, but specifically for individuals. We are born again of the Spirit, 
and yet we don't leave our bodies that were born of water. Christ becomes our Lord and Savior even now. And God has covenants with families, churches, and used to be with societies. Confessing with our mouths brings heaven's ethics down. That's part of the deal. And that's also really the only way to bring God's ethics to a holistic society. And we have to relearn this. I want to illustrate with a biblical example I don't think we've uh, used before. In 1 Kings chapter 18, I think you will remember this one, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a fight, their gods against Elijah's God. Now keep in mind the scope of this. This is about the nation, not just the church, the holistic society of Israel in which Ahab was currently king. Okay, so each of these entities, uh, the Baal prophets and, and Elijah, builds their own altar. And the deal is, let's see which God will show up. The question at hand is, what God are we going to follow? Well, no surprise to us, the God of the Baal prophets never produced any fire for the altar. Now, Elijah takes the opportunity to do some sanctified mocking of their gods, which, by the way, I think is a skill that probably needs to be cultivated uh, by us today. Well, after the no-show of the Baal god, the true god lights up Elijah's altar. He burns up the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and just for good measure, uh, licks up all the water that Elijah had poured around the trench. The people are amazed. Now, here's the culmination of this whole deal, and this comes from 1 Kings 18.39. I'm quoting. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, what was that all about? Why is everyone saying the same thing? Why this liturgy? Why this deliberate phrasing repeated for emphasis? Well, this is simply another example of social confessionalism in the Bible. Everyone came to the showdown, and everyone saw what happened, and everyone confessed. It says they, collectively, said with their mouths that the Lord, He is the God. This follows the pattern we see in many other passages. There was a a revealing of truth that came down from heaven, uh, and this intersected the physical in history. The people responded corporately, and not just the, the church, but the society. They confessed together that the Lord is God. Now they can be forgiven of societal sins and go forward in blessing. This is, this is good, real good. Gnosticism can't find soil in that type of construct because the spiritual is declared to be connected with the physical and time and space through all of the institutions that God made. So, in order to beat Gnosticism, let's work with our hands like C.R. Wiley said to do. And let's also ask God to enable us to confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord, as individuals, families, churches, magistrates, and like they did in 1 Kings, as a whole society. Even if it's a smaller subordinate society, God will honor that. And this deals a fatal blow to Gnosticism in our particular lands. Well, until next time, Psalm 6311, But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped.